Welcome to MTSU on the Record. I'm Jenna Lowe, and we're coming to you from the campus of Middle Tennessee State University in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. The International Bluegrass Music Association has a three-day program of learning experiences called Leadership Bluegrass that they hold every year in Nashville. This year's uh, endeavor takes place March 4th through the 6th at BMI. And Greg Reich, director of our Center for Popular Music, is one of the people who has been invited to take part. We'll talk about bluegrass music what the state of the industry is all about these days and uh, how it might benefit from a little bit better promotion or is the promotion just there and the audience not? We'll tackle any and all of the above after this. Here are some of the headlines making news at mtsunews.com, the university's news and information website. Insurance Group of America has given a significant boost to MTSU's new professional sales program with a $100,000 scholarship that funds a new office to increase student outreach and internship opportunities. The IGA Office of Professional Sales within the Jennings A. Jones College of Business will benefit from a yearly $20,000 commitment for the next five years from Jamie No, founder and owner of Nashville-based IGA, who says he hopes the office's enhanced student outreach efforts attracts top scholars and builds the sales concentration, quote, into a nationally recognized program, end quote. And a national organization for educators specializing in kinesiology has bestowed its highest award on an MTSU professor in the Department of Health and Human Performance. The National Association for Kinesiology in Higher Education presented Dr. Stephen Estes, who also serves as director of the College of Behavioral and Health Sciences Leisure and Sport Management Graduate Program with its President's Award January 10th at the group's annual convention in Savannah, Georgia. Estes' interest in the field of kinesiology, which is the study of body mechanics, began when he was a college athlete. He received his doctorate from Ohio State University in 1990 with an emphasis in sport culture. For MTSU News at any time, go to mtsunews.com. Greg, thanks for being with us. We appreciate it. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm glad to be here. What was your reaction when you found out you were invited to Leadership Bluegrass? It is competitive, so when I submitted my application, I wasn't uh, uh, certain or completely confident that I would be accepted, particularly because this is the first year I've applied, and uh, others um, in the process have uh, had to apply uh, several years in a row before they uh, were invited. So uh, I knew that my application was a strong one. I had talked to a number of people who are prominent in the industry and people involved with uh, the IBMA, the Bluegrass Music Association, uh, and people who'd been through the program before. Uh, so I got a lot of inside information uh, from friends who'd been through it and put together a strong application. And uh, I was pleased uh, when they uh, when they sent me the, uh, the invitation to participate. Now, exactly what you'll be doing is, uh, well, it's sort of a work in progress, isn't it? I, uh, I suppose Leadership Bluegrass is still putting their uh, agenda together. The experiences are designed to help motivate talent, instill enthusiasm for bluegrass, and in general, just promote the industry and address right. what kind of a future the the genre has. That's right. It's, it's really, uh, as I understand it, of course, I haven't been through it yet, but mm-hmm. uh, my understanding is that it's an opportunity for uh, people who are coming from various aspects of the bluegrass music world 
uh, people who are in the record side of it, uh, people who are in the promotions side of it, um, musicians, of course, producers, uh, and people involved with education and people involved with nonprofits in one way or another. Um, so people who might be active and familiar with one or two segments of the broader bluegrass music world and, and the industry, it's a chance for all of them to come together to learn about all the other facets of the bluegrass industry uh, and also to make connections in the process. And uh, from uh, friends and colleagues I know who've been through Leadership Bluegrass uh, have told me, I think, without exception, that the most important part of it to them was the uh, strong, lasting, meaningful uh, professional and musical connections that they've been able to make. We know it's a bit of a peripheral genre. It's not a mainstream genre. And so there's very much an attitude within the bluegrass community of, you know, a rising tide uh, lifts all boats. Mm -hmm. uh, so we really try to help each other uh, in various ways because that really benefits the music and benefits the community at large. How popular would you say bluegrass is today? It has, uh, especially over the last 10 to 15 years, really um, moved in, an, in a direction of more inclusivity. They want to increase the audience. They don't want to shut people out because this band or these sounds, you know, might not fit someone's, uh, you know, traditional uh, uh, definition of bluegrass. So if you think about it very inclusively, um, the, the International Bluegrass Music Association really um, – uh, embraces almost all um, string band music uh, of the United States uh, with with traditional well-defined bluegrass at its core but if we if we embrace all of this the the audience is is surprisingly large and surprisingly diverse uh, there are people of all ages there are people of all walks of life all different socioeconomic strata and uh, and also people from all over the country and all over the world uh, the the I in IBMA, international, is a very important part of their identity. Uh, there are always international participants in Leadership Bluegrass and at the, uh, the big IBMA uh, conference, World of Bluegrass, that takes place in uh, late September every year in Raleigh. There's always a very strong international presence. There are festivals and uh, bluegrass scenes of various kinds in Europe and in South America and in East Asia and probably uh, some other places that I'm not thinking of. But it, it is a worldwide phenomenon. So while it's not a mainstream genre, uh, it is certainly one that has a, a broad audience. So you don't have to be straight 100% pure Bill Monroe. That's certainly been my uh, my impression. As I mentioned, the uh, the debates are never-ending. There are the traditionalists, the purists, um, and uh, bluegrass itself, of course, has evolved. Even the, the, the kind of core, stylistic core of bluegrass doesn't generally sound like Bill Monroe anymore. But starting in the 60s and 70s and 80s, bluegrass began to open up and, and embrace influences from other styles, you know, more contemporary aesthetics. So bluegrass itself, even the stuff that a uh, few people would argue about being bluegrass, has a different sound. And then when you add to that um, different approaches that are related to bluegrass, 
but uh, are on the periphery of that stylistic core, it's, it's a pretty big spectrum. And that's one of the exciting things about the association. Uh, they have long since realized that it is better for all of us not to argue and not to exclude, but to include. Now, if a heavy metal band shows up with a, you know, electric <laughs> guitars and drums, uh, you know, I think everybody's going to agree that they're in the wrong place. But it's, it's that uh, spirit of openness and, uh, you know, and uh, experimentation and willingness to take the music someplace because, after all, that's what Bill Monroe did was he took the string band music of the 1920s and 30s uh, and the the brother duets like the the one he had with his brother, Charlie Monroe, uh, back in the pre-World War II era and he made something new with it. So bluegrass as a music is very interesting to me as a, as a music historian, as a, as a musician, as a teacher in the classroom. One of the things that's so interesting to me about bluegrass music that I always try and uh, share with my students is that it is simultaneously the most backward-looking and the most forward-looking of uh, the American uh, uh, types of country music or, or string band music, that it deliberately uh, presents a, a version of the past, uh, you know, that it's an evocation of the past, and older songs and older styles and acoustic instruments and so on. But they are used in ways that draw on um, other kinds of contemporary music and reflect contemporary society, uh, even today, well into the 21st century. And uh, so there, there is this, this marvelous paradox in, in bluegrass. It's, it's kind of a musical oxymoron <laughs> that it's very old-fashioned and it's very progressive uh, at the same time. We'll take a break right here. We'll be back in just a moment. This is MTSU on the record. The mission of the June Anderson Center for Women and Non-Traditional Students is to provide education, advocacy, direct services, outreach, and programming for the MTSU campus and surrounding community on gender-related issues. The center also assists older students who are trying to balance work, college, and family. It also sponsors a monthly legal clinic, career brown bag series, book club, and a newsletter twice a year. For all of the latest MTSU news and information, go to mtsunews.com. Women in Science and Engineering, or WISE, helps college women prepare for and become involved in science-related careers. WISE nurtures women's interest in these fascinating and critical fields and provides mentoring and networking opportunities. The group's main goal is to assure women of their importance in all scientific and technical fields and to promote equal opportunity and treatment of women in science. I'm Dr. Judith Iriarte-Gross, WISE advisor. For all the latest MTSU information, go to mtsunews.com. Greg Reich, director of the MTSU Center for Popular Music, is our guest. And we're talking about bluegrass music in general. The International Bluegrass Music Association has invited Greg, among other people, to join the 2019 class of leadership bluegrass uh, March 4th through 6th at BMI in Nashville. In the 70s, I heard David Grisman and Stefan Grappelli yeah. working with each other on an, an album. And Grisman's mandolin and Grappelli's violin joined forces to create something that was really neither bluegrass nor jazz, but something very listenable, something very upbeat, and something 
uh, really pleasant and creative. And I didn't know what genre to plug it into. And I thought, well, this this sort of defies genre, even though I played it as a DJ on my jazz program. Yeah, yeah. Is that the sort of amalgam of sounds that uh, that you're talking about? Yeah, that's right. And particularly in the 1970s, um, it started in the 60s a little bit, but it, in the 1970s, it really kind of exploded this this feeling of experimentation, of trying to take uh, uh, some sort of traditional bluegrass sound and fuse it in one way or another with other sounds and other styles and other genres. Um, and so, uh, you know, some folks like the Country Gentleman had al- already been um, mixing bluegrass with kind of contemporary folk sounds, uh, sort of bluegrass meets the Kingston Trio, that mm-hmm. kind of thing, which was very successful for them. Uh, and in the 70s, you had bands like Newgrass Revival come along and, and started to mix bluegrass with uh, contemporary rock and, and even disco and, and some other influences. And Grisman's approach, uh, which was very, very heavily influenced by the so-called gypsy jazz of, of Stefan Grappelli, who, of course, had uh, played with the famous uh, Django Reinhardt, you know, going all the way back to the pre-World War II era in, in France. Who was an influence on Willie Nelson's guitar style. That's, he was a huge influence on Willie Nelson's guitar style, um, uh, among many others, but it's very it's very uh, audible in, in Willie's style. Um, Django, of course, uh, uh, died a long, long time ago, but Stefan Grappelli lived uh, well into uh, old age. But Grisman uh, was very drawn to that kind of music. He had come up you know, playing a lot of traditional bluegrass, uh, had worked with Frank Wakefield, who was a, a you know a famous, um, innovative, influential, but still traditional, essentially a traditional bluegrass musician in in the Baltimore, Washington D.C. area. And Grisman had spent some time in the West Coast uh, as well, and so he was aware of like kind of the, the Grateful Dead and the blues rock scene uh, out out in the Bay Area. Uh, and Grisman got very interested in in the sound of gypsy jazz, and which is essentially string music, because it's guitars and and a violin and so on. Um, and he there had always been a jazz element uh, in uh, in bluegrass. I think from the beginning there was a certain jazz element. Of course, improvisation, virtuosic improvisation, are uh, essential uh, is an essential element of both of these uh, genres. And so Grisman saw that there was a lot of common ground in a and a kind of uh, a built-in opportunity to fuse these different styles. Uh, and uh, Grisman called the music dog music, D-A-W-G, which is his, his nickname. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think he himself recognized that it was something distinct that even from the other kinds of new grass and, and progressive bluegrass of that time period, he created his own sound. Uh, and of course, he he then you know created his own uh, quintet and worked with a number of musicians who went on to become very very big names and very influential folks. I mean, uh, uh, Tony Rice and uh, Daryl Anger and uh, Mark O'Connor and you know the list goes on and on. Mm-hmm. This was in some ways the beginning of what came to be called new acoustic music, which is a somewhat unfortunate phrase because it's so vague. Yeah. Um, but in a way, it's fitting because the music is very hard to classify. It draws on a lot of different influences. Bluegrass is at the core of it, and a lot of musicians who are making new acoustic music still today come from at least partially a bluegrass background. Um, but they also have jazz chops, and some of them have played and studied classical chamber music, and uh, many of them are familiar with rock and 
uh, you know, this music can draw on a lot of different elements freely and creatively. There's a certain purity in the music of just acoustic string instruments that people value and treasure so much in, in bluegrass. You can make a lot of music with just wood and wire, basically. One of the things that is so compelling about bluegrass, and this has been true from the very beginning when, when bluegrass was invented by, by Bill Monroe and, uh, and his band in the 40s, is that it has a tremendous amount of rhythmic complexity, what musicians often call drive, that is rhythmic energy, very tight, very um, very powerful, energetic. Even if the tempo is not fast on some songs, um, rhythmic drive and, and a real kind of strong rhythmic element is, is always essential. It doesn't matter how brilliant you might come up with a melody to improvise or, you know, how good your sound is on your instrument if you can't play it in the right rhythm. Um, especially as an ensemble, then the music it just completely falls apart and loses its character. So there's a certain pride that bluegrass musicians have always had now for 70 years um, about uh, uh, creating this kind of rhythmic energy and intricacy and excitement and drive without using the obvious quintessential rhythmic instrument, which is the drums. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, um, so drums are still relatively rare in bands that uh, call themselves bluegrass bands or have some influence, but they might show up in, a, say, a new acoustic music ensemble. Um, not necessarily, but they might, uh, because that is a branch of this, this, you know, or a segment of this whole spectrum of acoustic uh, string band music that is um, generally more embracing of other sounds. Uh, You can also hear um, sometimes uh, music uh, instruments from other cultures will show up. Uh, In fact, there's an interesting example from uh, one of our colleagues right here at MTSU, Dr. Mei Han, who is the director of the Center for Chinese Music and Culture here at MTSU. Uh, When she was uh, getting her PhD at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver some years ago, uh, she got involved with some of the um, uh, uh, local Vancouver bluegrass scene and the the kind of Northwest uh, bluegrass scene. She um, made an album collaborating with some of those West Coast musicians uh, it's called Redgrass, uh, and it's a collaboration between bluegrass musicians uh, who have a kind of a contemporary progressive mindset and uh, Mayhan and, and a few other cont- uh, traditional Chinese musicians playing their own instruments. There, there's a, a number of good examples of that. Of course, Bela Fleck is a famous example of someone, uh, you know, banjo player who uh, has, uh, you know, traveled to Africa and worked with musicians there. Um, uh, in in the region where the the ancestor of the banjo uh, can be found, um, so in a way he was sort of following his music or his instrument back to its roots, uh, which lie mostly in West Africa. Uh, so uh, there are some really really interesting compelling examples of these kinds of cultural crossovers in bluegrass. They're not they're not the norm. They're not at the center of the bluegrass world, but uh, they're no longer shocking when they happen because uh, you know a lot of people have been doing this kind of stuff now for some years. Time for another break. We'll return in just a moment. This is MTSU on the record. Specialized training in forensic science prepares tomorrow's professionals through the Forensic Institute for Research and Education, or FIRE. 
The forensic anthropology search and recovery team assists law enforcement with skeletal remains at crime scenes. Legendary forensic scientists provide lectures free to the public, and high school students work realistic crime scenes each summer at our CSI MTSU camp. I'm Dr. Hugh Berryman, Director of Fire. For more details, visit mtsunews.com. The Intercultural and Diversity Affairs Center helps to promote awareness and understanding of the wide variety of cultures represented at MTSU. The center provides information, referrals, and resources. Additionally, IDAC tries to make students from different cultures feel welcome and comfortable on campus so they can have every opportunity to fulfill their academic, social, and personal potential. For all the latest MTSU news and information, go to mtsunews.com. Greg Reich, director of the Center for Popular Music, is talking about bluegrass since he's going to be going to Leadership Bluegrass 2019, March 4th through 6th at BMI in Nashville. Does everybody get a solo in a bluegrass number? If you're playing mandolin, violin, fiddle, in other words, or banjo, uh, you are almost certainly expected to take what, what in bluegrass we call a break. Mm-hmm. which is a, you know, a, a short instrumental solo. That word break comes from uh, the notion that you're giving the vocalist a break. Here yes. so, so you take a break um, one time through the melody or you might split it with another instrument. Guitar is an interesting case because in traditional, uh, very traditional old school um, uh, bluegrass of the Bill Monroe style, uh, the guitar doesn't solo. Bill Monroe didn't have uh, lead guitar players who played melodic solos. Uh, His guitar players were rhythm guitar players, which is uh, really the primary function of that instrument. Um, And also his guitar players in the Bluegrass Boys were uh, typically the lead singer as well. And Bill did a lot of singing, um, but he had a high tenor voice and needed a lead baritone in there. Lester Flatt, who then went on to to form Flatt and Scruggs with with Earl Scruggs, was the the paradigm of the, the Bill Monroe style lead singer, baritone singer, who was a rhythm guitar player. But Lester never took solos on his instrument. The idea of a soloing in, in bluegrass guitar, playing melodic leads, you know, comparable to what the fiddle and the mandolin uh, do, um, that's something that uh, there are a few early instances of it, isolated instances in the 50s, and uh, it really started to pick up steam in the 60s. Um, the influence, uh, interestingly, came from outside, came largely from Doc Watson, who's not really a bluegrass musician, uh, strictly speaking, although he's worked, he did work with bluegrass musicians uh, from time to time, uh, made one album with Flat and Scruggs. Um, but the influence of Doc's flat picking, melodic lead flat picking, that carried over into um, the work of uh, Clarence White with the Kentucky Colonels. Uh, who in turn influenced um, Tony Rice and a whole, you know, uh, next generation of uh, lead bluegrass guitarists. How do you grow the bass? How do you grow the bluegrass audience? I don't see bluegrass, for example, on network television. The last time I can remember bluegrass being on a prominent network show was when Oh Brother Where Art Thou uh, won some Grammy Awards several yeah. years ago. The soundtrack from the movie and Ralph Stanley and other people performed. How do you get bluegrass out to a mass audience? In what is the right medium for it? There is no one right medium. Uh, it has to be a broad-based approach. Uh, and those of us who are involved in in playing and promoting the music in one way or another uh, are 
all too aware of that. Uh, you can't put all your eggs in one basket when it comes to promoting this music. It's true that there uh, have been occasionally opportunities like the O Brother phenomenon, which was huge because of the uh, the visibility of that film and and the, the the concerts and the awards, as you mentioned, and and all that that came in the wake of O Brother, and it brought awareness. Uh, of the music and, and and particularly to certain performers who were very well known, always have been well known in the bluegrass world, but but not necessarily to to uh, uh, mainstream audiences. So all of a sudden, people are wanting uh, Ralph Stanley records and and Norman Blake and John Hartford records and and Alison Krauss records and so on. Although Alison has has uh, you know had a lot of commercial success in other realms by um, by blending bluegrass with kind of a soft country sound um you know um allison was already uh you know grammy winner and and uh, very very successful uh by any commercial measure so uh it, it, the bluegrass world i think is is for the most part very honest with itself i mean i, I don't think very many people involved in bluegrass have any kind of um you know delusions about it becoming the next mainstream popular music of any kind and really you know competing you know for a slice of the big commercial pie and the the audience the the global audience that is comparable to say what mainstream country has or mainstream rock most people in bluegrass understand that bluegrass is never going to to be that. And honestly, I think most people in bluegrass want it that way. You want Having to preserve that, your uniqueness. You want to preserve your uniqueness. And there's a certain pride in uh, that I've sensed among uh, most bluegrass uh, folks in the music not being mainstream and, and completely commercialized. But wouldn't it be great if it were to achieve widespread acceptance and sales without bastardizing itself? Of course. Of course, and that that is ultimately the goal. And uh, uh, I think people want to see the bluegrass community sustained and grown um, to an extent that is possible without losing the character of what bluegrass is and um, and what makes the community itself so special. People want to grow and sustain the music. We want uh, the musicians uh, who are uh, making the music and the people who are promoting the music as their livelihood. We want them to flourish. We want them to be comfortable. We want them to be able to have the the support to do what they want to do musically and artistically. Um, but we want to do that without losing what bluegrass really is all about and, and what has drawn all of us to this music in the first place. Greg, thank you so much. Enjoy your time at Leadership Bluegrass, and we appreciate you taking time to be with us on MTSU. It's been my pleasure to be here. I I love nothing more than talking about bluegrass. (laughs) We'll be right back. The MTSU Department of Art has the newest facility for visual arts in the state with approximately 50,000 square feet of space, including high-tech computers and computer-driven equipment for multimedia, graphic design, printmaking, sculpture, painting, and ceramics. We feature a visiting artist lecture program and an exhibition program that exposes students to work by national and international artists. To find out more, visit mtsunews.com. 
The Middle Tennessee Writing Project is a program that fosters the effective teaching of writing to students in kindergarten through high school. The project hosts annual summer institutes where teacher participants teach and learn from each other effective techniques of teaching writing. In addition, the project sponsors summer writers camps for youngsters. MTSU is one of 185 sites of the National Writing Project and one of only two in Tennessee. For all the latest MTSU news and information, go to mtsunews.com. Gina Fan has the middle moment. MTSU's annual fundraising drive, the True Blue Give Project, is bringing people together from across the community to help students reach their goals. Distinguished alumnus Nick Duggar, a 13-time Emmy winner and TV production grad whose company captures everything from the national Christmas tree lighting to eight seasons of bluegrass underground, explains why he gives back to the place that trained him. I knew very early on that I wanted to work in digital production. My training on the MTSU mobile production unit gave me the foundation to start my own TV production company. I also know how important it is to give back, and that's why I'm a donor. Go to mtsu.edu forward slash true blue give or just text MTSU to 71777 to show MTSU some love. That's MTSU on the record. I'm Jenna Logue. Thanks for listening. MTSU on the record, a news and information program about Middle Tennessee State University is produced by the university's marketing and communications office, which is solely responsible for its content. Read more about MTSU at our website, mtsunews.com. Podcasts of this program are available at mtsunews.com and on iTunes.